Kevin Pollack, your host for this year. My name is Amazing Pod. Thanks for joining once again. Great, amazing episode today. Oh, my, my, my. So this is our first episode wherein I have a guest, extraordinary Cindy Tolan, who took over casting after the pilot. Once it was picked up to two seasons from pilot, Cindy Tolan was brought in. As she will explain. And so I thought with Cindy and having just finished season one, I would retrace the casting decisions along the way for season one of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And that's what Cindy Tolan and I spend the next goodly hour doing. She is uh, incredibly talented, uh, casting tremendous Broadway shows, television films, uh, producing the recently insanely successful Death of a Salesman with an all-black cast. And yeah, she's just as great as it gets, and shares a great many insights. So please enjoy this conversation. Before we get on to Season 2, Episode 1, very exciting guest for that. I'm not going to tease yet. Let's talk about the entirety of Season 1 with the great casting director, multi-award winning Cindy Tolman. And now, please welcome casting agent extraordinaire, Cindy Tolan. Cindy, hello! Hi, Kevin. How are you? Oh, I'm so well, thank you. Welcome to the proceedings. I've been spending the last many weeks breaking down each episode and talking to actor types. And then the idea was to get some creative department heads just to sort of talk in overview sense, in this case, the first season. And you are in my preliminary text exchanges. You were kind enough to remind me that you had not cast the pilot, so I won't bog you down with questions about that. I just don't want to take credit for amazing work that Jeannie Bacharach and Meredith Tucker did. You know, it's just like, because we did that together. So I want them to get their credit. Truly amazing, right? So incredible. And I have to say, I'm relieved that I wasn't available to cast the pilot because I don't think I would have done as good of a job. <laughs> oh, well, did. listen. <laughs> they, they Who's did, to say? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know that the world at large is aware of to what degree the show's creators are deeply fondly, depending on the expertise of the casting director on a week-to-week basis, episode to episode. So talk a little bit about how you were brought in after the pilot, or were you contacted beforehand? And was there already a conversation list if the show gets picked up? Talk to me about your process. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that I'm, you know, so grateful for my collaboration with Amy and Dan. I met them in 2008, uh, actually. And so Amy uh, and Dan kept in touch with me because I was lucky enough to get hired to work with them on their series for Fox in 2008, The Return of Jezebel James. That's how we met. Oh, wow. Really, with Amy and Dan, it was like instant connection, really understanding and getting each other and really yeah. getting into each other's, they they say this word, the pocket, you know, and really sure. understanding that we were artistically connected, that you just were in sync, you just got each other. And it was kind of like you knew exactly what each other wanted and needed. And so that was short lived. It was only three episodes. But then Amy and I kept in touch. So she would see my work. And then randomly through the years, I would randomly get an email saying, All I can, like, I think one of them was like, I did this film straight out of Compton. Oh, yeah. And I had been doing these huge open calls in South Central LA. And Amy had seen the movie. And then I would randomly get an email saying, like, all I can think about are the open calls that you did out in South Central LA. And your work is just exquisite. And randomly, I would get these emails. I hope I will be lucky enough to work with you again. All of these things. And I'm like, this is amazing. This is Amy Sherman Palladino. She's so sweet. You know, so sweet. Yeah. and then cut to 2017 when they were doing uh, the pilot of this and she reached out to me. And I think I and really I was busy. I think I was working on two films and there was just no way because I also at that time, I knew that for me, television is the most difficult thing to cast. And why is that? I feel like it's different now because of the way that TV has evolved into it's like movies and time is different. But back then it was like, it was like there was a clock on my wall always. And I had 24 hours to 
to cast everything in a period of time. Because if you were working on a half hour show, you had five days to cast it. If you were working on an hour show, you had 10 days to cast it. Mm -hmm. And depending on what it was, it could be five roles to 25 roles. And the business model was so difficult in, in like all the executives at all the studios had approval. It was just very hard. And it was always like you were beating the clock. Yeah. There was no um, the internet. You weren't doing anything on links. Everything was by FedEx. <laughs> you had to yeah. make you know, we had FedEx on DVDs. You had to make the deadline for FedEx for the DVD to get overnight, you know, by 9 p.m. So you were working until really late, late at night. And so I found that the time of it, like the deadline of it was so stressful. Sorry, what was on the DVDs? Auditions. Oh, so people were putting themselves on tape in the form of a DVD. We were, no, see, no one put themselves on tape. We were all... Oh, of course, 2017. Sorry, yeah. Right. So this is... a. This back in the day when you were doing like mostly studios, so ABC, yeah, NBC, right? You would the day before set up a whole day of auditions for the next day. You would start the auditions 10 o'clock a.m. You would go to it until say 3 p.m. Then you would edit all of the auditions and then you had to burn a DVD so that you could make the FedEx deadline by nine o'clock so it could get to the studios the next day for them to audition for them to approve or not approve. And then if they didn't approve, you had to do it again, but you've already lost the day. Sure. They were watching the DVD. (laughs) Nightmare nightmare <laughs> and so i always found it very stressful yeah i can see why film was was more, more <laughs> yeah. and now it's completely different right and so sure. i find it less stressful and also it's much more like movies i find i i find it's just like there's more money yep the talent has increased uh exponentially so that anybody that o- did movies only did movies now really do television yeah so it's kind of switched off, you know, a little bit. And so now TV is kind of where it's at sometimes. If well, you look at the yeah, media. the writing and the production sort of drives the entire medium. And it just did shift at some point where people realized, oh, I can have more time to tell a longer story and the better writers. And, and more I, money. And as it turns out, more money even before Amazon started writing giant checks. Yes, there seemed to be more money at an HBO and so on. Netflix, you know. Yeah. Uh, now there's Apple. Like they're all in in the game of it. And you know, you like look. This isn't casting, but if you watch one episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and you watch a shot that Amy Sherman Palladino has orchestrated, it is incredible. It <laughs> yeah. is like a movie shot, right? Yeah. It's yeah. just like. 13 pages of dialogue in one shot. Mm. That is bananas. (laughs) Tell me about it. It's all the actors have been talking about on this podcast. But now let's go back to 17 when you weren't available for the pilot, but then the show gets picked up from pilot to two seasons. Yeah. And And so Meredith Tucker was no longer available to do the New York casting and Jeannie Bacharach was doing the L.A. casting. So then Amy came back to me and she said, please, are you available? Don't break my heart. Yeah. And I said, actually, I think I am. And I was. And I really wanted to work with Amy. And at that moment, I did it. It hadn't been picked up. They had just shot the pilot. Right. I didn't know that it was picked up for two seasons. So I had a meeting. Well, I, I said yes. I had a meeting, and it was immediately to cast your role, <laughs> Caroline Aaron's role, and Sophie Lennon. It was like we know that we're going to have this one big uh, female comic, and we want to start casting that right away. And there were no no scripts or anything, so no. it's just based on descriptions. And I think yeah. that you know that because you were the first person we asked to play Moish, and you said yes, but you didn't have a script. I don't think. There was just a pilot to look at. The pilot had dropped, of course, on Amazon is how how they, I don't know if they still do their system that way, but they would make a pilot. And instead of doing all the testing that the broadcast networks have been doing, where seven people in a room who were promised soup and air conditioning would judge the future success of a television show. Uh, So, yeah. So my agent said, you're on a very small list, as they like to say. (laughs) And they said, it's incredibly small. In fact, 
you need to watch the pilot immediately because Amy and Dan want to talk to you. Right. And you know how it is that pilot it just takes your breath away. Everyone I've spoken to. Exactly right. Yeah. And a show being picked up from pilot to two seasons had only happened once or twice previously. It was another historical thing for a very young streaming platform. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting. It was such an instant yes from just watching the pilot. I don't think I was the demographic for the Gilmore Girls, so I missed that genius as as an old white pasty Jew. (laughs) Man, I missed the Gilmore Girls. Immediately started watching once I thought I might be in business with Amy and Dan. But yeah, that pilot just takes your breath away. So were they showing you the pilot also when you were... No, I didn't see the pilot. I don't even think the pilot was done by the time I saw it. And I think, you know, we had a meeting and it was so immediate and clear to me that you and Caroline, Aaron, (laughs) were fit seamlessly into their world, right? Because they created such a world. And I now, uh, my associate Ann Davidson and I call now coin it as the Paladino Pace Yes. Because it's very fast talking. And that is specific, I think. And if you need to be able to do the fast talking dialogue, and if you can't, then you really can't do the show because it's very hard to learn that. It's patter. You know, it's patter. Yeah. You really need uh, technically skilled to be able to do that. And so for me, in terms of casting the show, that's why I immediately... You know, I come from theater and I look towards theater. Yeah. And a lot of the casting over the seasons and over the years, you will see a continuous arc of that, right? Most of the people who are recurring on this show yeah. have a theater background. Right. That's on purpose. Yes. You know? Yeah. You can, there are some people that can do it, but inevitably it's like trained people you know, from theater. And I was familiar with your work and Caroline's work, obviously, because I'm a movie kid of the 90s, right? And that you guys were just always, always on the movie screens, always. Yeah. Yeah. You big, um, a few good men, right? And that was the one that always stayed with me. And Caroline um, was Heartburn and then the Woody Allen films, right? And then I also knew her personally through our relationship with uh, the famous playwright, Wendy Wasserstein. So I also knew her as a person. And oftentimes that also helps casting because you know, you know actors as people and that's a whole other dimension that you then get to bring with when you're casting something if it's not on the page you can speak to it yeah well listen i was very busy in the 90s yes Uh, (laughs) i was a girl who couldn't say no (laughs) no you were in great movies i mean it wasn't like you were just like yes 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 it was like oh it was both it was both i mean i i was i was was a stand-up comedian first with actually no formal training as an actor so i went on a couple of hundred auditions and learned how to audition basically and by the time a few good men came around you know everybody was famous in that movie and it was rob reiner in the midst of batting a thousand through his first seven films and it was just the timing of everything and so For me, in 1992, to go from auditioning to getting offers after A Few Good Men, that opened up the 90s to a girl who couldn't say no. Because once the offers start, because as a stand-up comedian, when someone says there's stage time, the answer is yes. (laughs) So that was my only training in terms of getting offers. It meant (laughs) like to work. I get it. Yeah. And the answer is yes. (laughs) We'll pay. So, yeah. (laughs) Right. But that's the pattern, right? So like. Yeah. In terms of the pattern, I had to play a little bit of catch up. I mean, I was always drawn to fast talking characters, but you're not wrong in terms of it is so specific to the Paladinos and they have a pace that is almost unparalleled. I mean, Aaron Sorkin certainly became famous for his walk and talk. And Woody Allen was one of the first people I saw, you know, comedy played in a medium two shot where people were just talking as fast as they could. And it's compelling almost by design because of the quick pace. So I love that you're if you could speak more to were there people you brought in over that first season who maybe couldn't keep up with the pattern? And it was the reason why you 
everybody could. I mean, there wasn't one person because they would come in for me, the people who couldn't do it. But inevitably, Amy and Dan wouldn't see those people. Right. But what was really so key and helpful to being able to cast season one really well, once you and Caroline said, thank goodness, it was on to Sophie Lennon in the season. I really, we really wanted to get a name, like I wanted to. Amy and Dan did not say this at all, but I really wanted to get a linchpin. Yeah. For the season, like an actor magnet, somebody that the world kind of knew, you know, for that role that we would then be able to fill out the rest of the season with really great actors of a certain caliber. Sure. And God love Jane Lynch. Jane Lynch didn't see any episodes. There were no scripts. And she was just like, well, sure, let me let me consider it. And let me talk to Amy and Dan. And she said, yes, she was available for like the first time in her life because this she was doing series, you know, she had done Glee and then there was another series that she did. And then she happened to be available. And she said, yes, once we got you guys and Jane, we were off to the races because then we were able to get David Paymer, Max Casella, Wally Sean. And Wally Sean had worked with Amy and Dan in the return of Jezebel James, you know, so you were able to then fill out these people. They're kind of like markers. Right. Yeah. Like you could get all these people, then all the day players, you just fill in, you create the fabric of the piece. Well, that's beautiful. And also something I didn't know. And I'm assuming most of our listeners are not going to have any idea how some, how, a, as you say, linchpin casting. And it speaks to, you know, you're as good as the company you keep. Yes. So when you just like for me, when I heard it was Amy and Dan and their pedigree and they started talking about who was already cast and who did the pilot right i had such such admiration for several of the people including rachel brosnahan who i just loved so much in house of cards i didn't see how that character in house of cards would inform midge mazel and then that speaks to the brilliance of rachel of course so I love the idea of Jane Lynch as linchpin of a level of quality, because you're right. She was never available. Um, The fact that she wasn't able to see the pilot and just have a conversation with Amy and Dan is pretty remarkable. You think talent recognizes talent? That's right. Talent recognizes talent. Skill recognizes skill. So if you say Amy Sherman Palladino, Dan Palladino, Tony Shalhoub, Marn Hinkle, Rachel Brosnahan, Alex Borstein, Kevin Paula, Caroline, Aaron, and then you can go and watch the Gilmore Girls, and then you can talk to the Palladinos, you get it. You either get it or you don't. And the people who get it are the people who are supposed to be on the show. And the people who don't are, you're so fortunate that they didn't say yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because it would be miserable for everybody. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the ideal situation is that everyone is wildly enthusiastic when they come to work. And that, as you say, is certainly not always the case. Given the pretty secretive nature of episodes from the actor's standpoint in terms of seeing scripts before table reads it's often 24 hours or 48 if you're lucky but you've got a cast of course long before that so during the process of that first season what was the nature of the individual episode casting well i think you know it's funny because we will have a meeting before the season with amy and dan and they will tell us you know big arcs or big roles that need to be cast sure but with day players we're like you we get the script (laughs) the same day oh wow then we have to start casting and so it's just about how comfortable you are in the world and i think that's why the relationship with amy and dan is so important Mm. because they trust that we understand the world that they're creating and that we're going to bring the people that are right for the roles to them. Yeah. And that there's trust there. And so if they don't necessarily see it, they'll ask an opinion and you're just completely honest. And you say, I think they can do it. I'm not sure. Maybe I think this is the strength. Maybe this is the area that would need work. And then at some point they're like, do you think that they can do it? And you know, 
and you go out on the line and you just say yes or no. And, you know, I think that's the thing because it's just like it's your name and it's your art. And just like, you know, you don't want to say yes if people can't do it. That's right. That's right. And just because someone can't do this doesn't mean they can't do other things. This is just so specific. Right. Well, let's break down some specific casting choices and opportunities to fill out the show episode by episode. So episode two of season one, Moish and Shirley are introduced. We've spoken about that. Then we've got Mrs. Moskowitz. Cynthia Darlow. Yeah. Cynthia Darlow is amazing. Now, Cynthia Darlow goes right back to what we were talking about with theater, right? Because Cynthia Darlow has been a working actress on Broadway in theater for her entire adult life. And I, because I also started out in theater, so I have known her through casting, Mm -hmm. you know, many, many plays at Lincoln Center Theater. And Cynthia Darlow would come in and audition. And so that's my relationship with Cynthia Darlow. And so she came in and they just absolutely loved her and she got the job. You know, and I think with Amy and Dan, it's just like when people are right and they're good, then they write to them yes. for additional episodes. So I don't necessarily remember if Mrs. Moskowitz was supposed to come back and be recurring, but that they just fell in love with Cynthia Darlow, that they kept writing to her. That's exactly right. Yeah, I had Cynthia on the podcast quite recently, actually, and she spoke to that very thing, which was there was no idea or consensus on whether she would be returning at all. Yeah. let alone for multiple recurring episodes. Yeah. And even, you know, Moish and Shirley were reoccurring initially without any real designs or promises as far as what we were told, exactly. uh, how many episodes they would be doing. Now, so episode three of season one, you mentioned David Pamer. Now, here's a character actor who does exceptional work each and every time. What was the process of filling in the Harry, all-important Harry Drake character? Well, I mean, I think David Pamer is another 90s baby that I, you know, that I was seeing in all the movies, right? Absolutely. In the the 90s. And, you know, so famous. Such a famous character actor that was in everything that had the same pattern. And I was just like, I don't know. Can we get him? You know? I don't know. He's not New York local. This goes back to Amazon and having, you know, more financial freedom than back in the day with TV, which is just like, or I don't even know. Can we fly people in and house them for this show? Or I don't even know if we can consider people from LA and Dana Gilbert, who's our amazing executive producer and line producer is just like, yes, whatever Amy and Dan want, they can have. So if you're saying that this is the guy they want, want, (laughs) then we'll make it happen. And that's what you want. You want somebody who trusts the process and trusts all the department heads and and Amy and Dan. And so we offered it to him and he said yes. And then they made it happen. Yeah. Well, that's a great story. And Max Casella, who I've loved for a very long time, exceptional as the great torchbearer and, you know, the fighter in the field for the subversive (laughs) lawyer, Michael Kessler. (laughs) What was that process like? Well, that was, again, you know, it was just like, when then we're going to have this lawyer, you know, they're going to get arrested. And, you know, at that time, um, Max was on vinyl mm-hmm. on HBO, and which I loved that series, you know, and I was just obsessed with it. And I would watch yeah. it every week. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's perfect. He's perfect for it. And I've known Max forever because also through theater, because he's um, really close with John Totoro. Oh, yeah. And I had been working with John Totoro, who was directing three plays on Broadway. And we had cast Max in it. And I said to Amy and Dan, I'm like, well, what do you think about Max Cassell? And they're like, we love Max. Do you think we could get him? I'm like, mm-hmm. why, why wouldn't you be able to get Max Casella? Oh, he's so good. So that was an offer because they watch everything. Yes. You know, Amy and Dan are very prolific. They watch movies. They watch, you know, television, even things that aren't their genre. They just... You know, they're so hungry for it. And so mm-hmm. they, of course, knew Max and his work. And so that was an offer. Yeah, that's so nice. Not thinking that they could get him, you know, and you're just like, I think you can. I'm yeah. pretty sure he'll say yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And I talked to Max, I remember, and the and 
all the actors just said, when the writing's this good, it's the easiest yes ever. Yeah. And then I loved Joe, is it Grafasi? Who played Judge? Grafasi, yes. But, you know, I'm so boring on this show because, again, it's just like I knew Joe Grafasi for a gazillion years through theater. Well, right? of course. Yeah. And so that was where Joe Grafasi came. And um, I, I do think that Joe auditioned. I think yeah. that Joe did audition because I don't think that Amy and Dan uh, knew him. Um, sure. But, again, Amy and Dan actually are obsessed with theater. They go to theater, you know, like we bonded over the fact that um, years ago I had done the casting for the Broadway show Xanadu. Amy went, I invited them. They came, they saw it. Amy went back and saw it six times. She was like a fan, you know, she was like stage door, like groupie, you know, and, and so you just trust and rely on that knowledge because they have an encyclopedia knowledge of the mediums, you know, they certainly do. Yeah. All right. Moving on to episode four, we see Susie's office, which is a newspaper stand and it's run by. Uh, this character Darius, who Chaz Lamar Shepard plays mm-hmm. wonderfully, and wanted to hear about that. That was an audition. That was somebody that we didn't know. He was submitted through uh, his agent, right. and he auditioned with like twenty other guys, and he got it. You know, and and that's what they see it. And back before the pandemic, on specific roles, Amy and Dan would want to do callbacks in person. Yeah. And- all of the actors would go to Steiner Studios at the Navy Yard and we would uh, they would all audition for Dan and Amy uh, in person while we were shooting. Yeah. So it would be on their lunch break. And we would be waiting for them to, you know, uh, wrap up the scene. They would come for lunch and, and during their lunch hour, they would audition all the actors uh, for a handful of roles and they would give adjustments and they can tell immediately and they need to hear it. Amy and Dan need to hear it. If they don't know the actors and if they don't know their technical uh, verbal skills, they need to hear it. Yeah, yeah. And because they're writing and directing everything, they just know immediately. Yeah. They'll know if they can do it or not. Yeah, there's a music. And, it's amazing, yeah. And then another little role that I thought was juicy was um, Jane Jacobs played Allison Smith giving the speech in Washington Park. <laughs> do you know the story? No, it's a good story. Really? You don't know the story? I didn't hear it. So, um, you know, I I didn't know who Jane Jacobs was. I have to say, I did not know who Jane Jacobs was. And obviously, most of the world does. It's a historical figure. And, you know, that she beat Robert Moses in real life. And otherwise, right now, we would have a highway through Washington Square Park if it weren't for Jane Jacobs. And that was all real. And so Ann Davison and my um, other associate, Nicholas Petrovich, in my office, I'm like, who's Jane Jacobs? I don't even know who Jane Jacobs is. And they're like, well, look up a picture. Look up a picture because you have to authentically like match person, right? And the picture comes up. And Ann Davison goes, Cindy, it looks just like your partner, Allison Smith. Just she's more attractive. Allison Smith is a more attractive version of Jane Jacobs. I'm like, let me see the picture. And I see the picture and I'm like, oh, my God, it's true. So we have massive auditions. We see all these amazing actresses in New York. And then Ann and Nick were like, we have to ask Allison to audition. I'm like, no, we can't. That's crazy. They're like, ask her. So I just, I said to Allison, my partner, I said, do you want to audition? She's like, sure, why not? Wow. Allison studied acting at Brown University and writing and all of that, but she's not, you know, she hadn't, you know, did not go that, uh, that route. She's right. an incredible writer. And so she came in and she auditioned just like everyone else. And then we just sent all the auditions to Amy and Dan, 20 actresses. And, and they didn't know anything about anything. We just sent Allison with everyone. Wow. I get one sentence back in an email from Amy Sherman Palladino saying, who is this Allison Smith? Oh, my God. Seriously. Who is this Allison Smith? And I'm like, well, full disclosure, 
I'm like, she's my partner. <laughs> she's like, really? Do you think she'd be up to this? I'm like, I think so. But let me ask her. Now, Allison, we have a house in Northampton, Massachusetts. Allison was an ar- on an archaeological dig of Emily Dickinson's house because they're looking for artifacts because they're rebuilding her house, which is a museum. So I text her. I'm like, Amy Sherman Palladino wants to know if you're up to playing the role of Jane Jacobs. And she goes, I think so. And I said back to Al, uh, to Amy, I'm like, she said she can do it. She's like, do you think she can do it? I'm like, yes, if she says she can do it, she can do it. She's like, okay, get her here for tomorrow for a costume fitting. Crazy. <laughs> and she did it. And she was amazing. And sure was. The whole story it was 98 degrees, the hottest day oh. in the summer. And it's shooting for fall. And, you know, with Donna, our amazing costume designer, everything is period. Everything is authentic. So they're in their wool coats and nuns were passing out. (laughs) You know, the extras were (laughs) passing out. (laughs) Allison was called at like 6 a.m. She didn't get home until 9 p.m. They did the scene 63 times. She thought that she was done. And then they said, "Okay, now we're going to turn it around. She thought that was wrap. No, they turn it around, do it from the back. (laughs) The next day, she's got blisters, cold sores in her mouth because she's just like, I can't mess up. I can't mess up. I can't make Cindy look bad. Oh, the poor thing. But she's great. She auditioned and she got it on her own. But that's, you know, I would say that I do that. Like as a casting director, I do do that. I cast real people all the time because you can cast anything if the world is so big. Yes. You know, and people have to be, I mean, you know, people are just are talented and good and they either can do it or they can't. But that is a good story. That's a great story. That's a good story. Yeah. That's (laughs) And they liked her so much that they wrote her back in for the next season. How about that? I know. <laughs> and and was that the first thing that she first television show that she worked on as yeah. an actress? And she yeah. still gets residual checks. And, you yeah. know, as casting directors, I don't get residual checks. <laughs> 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 I'm like, you got to you have a check from the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. <laughs> yeah. And then from that, she was she got an offer to do a horror movie as a, as a poet. And so she did that. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, that's pretty damn amazing. I love that oh, story. Wait, I'm sorry, but that's a good story. No, that's a no phenomenal story. No one knew because then uh, Luke Kirby, then the story came out after she had filmed it and everything. And then the story came out in that way because, you know, because she was good. Yeah. You know, uh, and then Luke Kirby, I was getting into an elevator. He's like, that Jane Jacobs, she was so amazing. I'm like, do you know the story? He's like, what's the story? And then I told him the story. And, you know, everyone's shocked. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's a story you, you never actually hear about. Now that. everyone knows. <laughs> yes. Well, well the, that's the price of admission. Oh, oh, oh there is a uh, comic that Midge in episode four goes to see and she's taking notes while watching him. And then he later spots her with the notebook and accuses her of stealing his act. But Aaron Sarotsky, is that my saying that right? Yeah. Audition theater guy. Well, he nailed the, all the mannerisms of a stand-up comedian. You know, it's my first love. And so we're especially scrutinizing as a species, the stand-up comedian. Okay. Yeah. And how am I uh, doing? How am I doing? Phenomenal. Yeah. No, I mean, he, yeah, his, uh, his stage presence, his delivery, all of it. I mean, clearly he nailed it in the audition, but that was one of the first, I think, sort of um, polished stand up comedians who appear on the show, yep. other than Lenny Bruce. We're only at episode four. And, you know, I remember watching the show as a fan and getting that first glimpse through living vicariously through Midge and her journey as the whole show, her seeing that first polish act and taking notes. And I thought, this is the act to take the notes from because the weird phenomenon of Midge Maisel's stand-up is that her brilliance is all stream of conscious. And so to actually try to become a joke-writing stand-up comedian was part of her journey. And I just loved your help and choice of bringing in Eric Sarotsky. Yeah. 
you know, that, and that's also like, it's a challenge and it's hard when we have to cast comics. Yeah. Right. Because it's not just comics, it's comics in Amy and Dan's world. Yes. Right. And so you're looking for a bunch of stuff because it needs to be tight. Yeah. Right. It needs to be tight. You need to technically still be able to do their patter. <laughs> yeah. Even though you're doing jokes. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you do you bring in actual stand up comedians? We do, but inevitably we have more often than not cast actors as opposed to the comics. Yeah. Actors who can do it. Yeah. Not just to suggest that i'm such a rarity but i have found wow. most most stand-up comedians are not natural actors even though we're all acting to a certain degree on stage in our on stage persona when we do stand up there's something unnatural actually about the way most comedians talk on stage it is a performance of mm -hmm. sorts and many of us will tell stories and act out characters within our stand-up act and that that I promise you, and doing impersonations has really had a lot to do with how I personally learned how to act. Right. When I would impersonate someone, I would sort of build that impersonation from the ground up and be studying the mannerisms and not just the cadence of their sing-songy, you know, delivery. And I, I had assumed that you would find more success in bringing in actors to portray stand-ups than the opposite. Yeah, I also, I think... You know, not all comics do this, obviously, but it's like Amy and Dan are very precise in what they write. Yes. And this is a big theater thing, too. I know I'm so boring with the theater thing, but this is big, too. It's just like these words were chosen for a reason. Mm -hmm. They're specific and they're precise. Do not ad lib into this world. Yeah. Right. Because inevitably whatever you're going to add is never going to be as good as what Amy and Dan Palladino have written. So as soon as you do that, you've cast the die against yourself. <laughs> right? Yeah. I had assumed and that you would make that clear to everyone who auditions because from my days of auditioning, I would want to know that first and foremost, is this something where I can play with what's on the page or do I need to be treated like a, a playwright? Correct. And I think a lot of comics initially are just like, because maybe they're not comfortable with it or yeah. the different medium in terms of what they're doing night to night, like, you know, inevitably they would add things or yeah. they would, they would add a joke or something. Right. 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 And technically it wouldn't work or whatever. And you're just like, yeah, it's going to be the actor. The actor is going to stick to the script and they're going to be able to deliver what is on the page. Of course. Whether or not you think it's better than what you're adding that's where we're going with the decision. Yeah. <laughs> and Aaron had auditioned many, many times for many, many roles. And that's also what the Paladinos are great at doing, which is like they remember. They yeah. remember actors that audition and then find something later for them. Yeah. Well, nailed it. In episode five of season one, we meet the character Herb Smith. And I am dying to know the journey of bringing my fave Wallace Shawn to portray Herb Smith. Well, I was like, Herb Smith, I don't know if it's going to be a big enough part for Wally or not, but it's just like, that's where, you know, and Wally is such a great person yeah. in life, right? Can you, if it weren't Wally and he wasn't such a great person, I don't know if you'd be able to sell it to somebody of, of Wally Sean's stature, right. right? Based on the size of the part. But because Wally had already worked with Dan and Amy from the return of Jezebel James, there was uh -huh. already a relationship that you could then build on and just basically go to Wally and say, they love you. They want to find something for you. This is the role that they have that's available at this moment. Would you consider doing it? Yeah. And he was just like, of course. Well, that's lovely because he was just so brilliant. But you're right. There's not a whole lot there. Right. But that's another person like uh, having built a relationship and a collaboration. And then also knowing Wally Sean as a person, just be like, I think it's OK. I do not think he will be offended. Let's let's just ask him. But respectfully. Yeah. yeah. And also in episode five are the B. Altman counter sales gals. Oh, they're all so good. Oh, man. I love so them. Good. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to ask your help at some point to see if I can speak with 
as many of them sure. as are available and interested. They are Aaron Drake, Lily Stein, and Wakima Hollis. I think it's Aaron Dark. Oh, is it? Yeah, Aaron Dark, uh, Wakima, and who was the other one that you said? Lily Stein played Vivian. Right. So now these women are amazing. And the again, the linchpin for those women was Erin Dark. If you get Erin Dark, then who do you build around Erin Dark, right? But you always have Midge. So yeah. you're like, okay, who would be great with Midge? And at that time, the Good Girls Revolt was on TV. And I oh, believe wow. I'm not mistaken. Aaron Dark was on that. This is what I'm remembering. Yeah, yeah. I loved that show. I thought that show was incredible. It should still be running. And it was amazing. And I was like, I don't know. Can we get her for this? And Ann Davison, my fantastic associate, who is really instrumental in in casting this with me, um, uh, just like, it might be recurring. I think it's going to be recurring. Let's ask. And she happened to be available. And she, she too, loved it and she said yes and then so then it was about okay you've got the world you're getting the world and lily stein was a great comic actress Mm. that we knew had auditioned for a bunch of stuff and so we brought her back in we knew that she could do the dialogue and wakima we didn't know at all and that was just an audition that worked out really well yeah she was tremendous um i'm ever so slightly dyslexic so that's how aaron dark became aaron drake I just, I just realized. Yeah. So I love that she came to mind and it was the idea of sort of building around her. And of course, reoccurring was a real thing for that character. We don't know how long Midge Maisel is going to work the counter at B. Altman. And that was one of those things I was curious about where when it first came in episode five to cast the counter gals, did Amy and Dan have any idea that they could share with you that how long how many episodes mid to be working that count? No, they always have an idea that, you know, she's going to work there. She's going to work there for a little while, you mm-hmm. know? And so if you start breaking it up and you're just like, okay, there's going to be eight episodes in season, season one and we're on episode five, it can't be more than three, but maybe it'll come back for the following season. We don't know. And they don't know. They never have an idea until they start writing it. Right. Sure. So, but you could say to Aaron dark, it's just like, you could like say that, it's like it's eight episodes in season one. We're on season five. So it has the ability to be three. We know it's going to be at least one more. Sure. So, you know, that's sure, the yeah. conversation. A more insight that I'm so grateful for. Now, the next episode, episode six, uh, we have some powerhouses entering the family in Justine Loop and Will Brill. Yeah. Oh, my. I mean, they're amazing. And Will Brill and Justine, I was, they're both like, Justine is the, is trained. She's, I, I want to say she's Juilliard trained, but I could be getting that wrong. It's like NYU graduate master program in acting or Juilliard, I can't remember, but immediately has the language skills. And Will Brill works a lot with David Cromer or had worked a lot with David Cromer, the theater director, who's also an actor. And mm-hmm. so they came in and they both auditioned with lots of people. And that, I think at that time, I think that Will Brill wasn't in New York. And so that is when we started introducing auditioning via Skype. Oh, wow. And I believe Will didn't audition in the room, but he had a call back and it was over video. And that, again, with the Paladinos is just like, we like him. Can he do it? And it's off of Zoom and tape. And you're like, yes, he can. And then he got it. And Justine was just perfect in every way. Oh, yeah. I spoke with Justine. Uh, We did an episode of the podcast together. And uh, yeah, her version of the entree into this world was very similar. And her recollection of the experience was pretty phenomenal because it is such a unique world to step into. You've also got a friend of mine who also came on one of the episodes of this podcast in Nate Cordry. Oh, amazing. Again, I was like so happy that we landed Nate Cordry, right? That was such a big deal. And I was like, that role was so hard. I'm like, 
how are we going to cast this guy? Yeah. And then what was the show Nate had just been doing? Like he was just on a TV series. Well, it might have been Mom because that's where he and I met. And that was yeah. shortly before this. Yes, I think that's right. And I think it was just such a no brainer. And then could we get him? Can we get him? He's not New York local. Dana, can we afford him? And if he wants to do it and yes, we'll make it happen. And then he just he just said, yes, but he yeah. auditioned too, though. Yeah, that's what he said. He mentioned that he auditioned and, um, you know, he, like many actors, riddled with insecurities um, and was quite thrilled to step into this circus yeah and bringing back justine and will you know as part of the nucleus of the weissman family has been such an extraordinary gift to the rest of us actors but it must be especially rewarding when you're involved in the creative um, introduction of, of those actors into this world Absolutely. But look at you and Caroline. I mean, you know, it really like, could you imagine the series without those roles like Moish and Shirley? <laughs> well, thankfully, you and uh, Paladinos could not imagine. It. Well, but I think it becomes it's so perfect that you are so perfect for the roles. They write also so perfectly to both of you. Yeah. That you can't actually I can't actually imagine the show without those in-laws. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I remember the first phone call I had with Amy and Dan. And as I think Amy explained it, she said, yeah, when, when we realized we were moving forward with the series, we did instantly think we need in-laws immediately. <laughs> we're, we're not sure what we were thinking, not having them at the wedding in the pilot, but we certainly need them now. Oh, I know what I wrote down here was the uh, a big transition for Abe Weissman's character is going from being a professor to working at Bell Labs. And David Aaron Baker plays the recruiting person from Bell Labs, his character Charles. Yeah, like Mrs. Moskowitz, Cynthia Darlow, uh, David Aaron Baker is a working actor in New York for his whole entire life. From yeah. 20s to, I don't, I think he's 50s, you know, and again, it's just like great New York actors who audition and they can see it. The Paladinos can see it and they say, yes, it's like Michael Countryman, I think also at one point, is he in season one? He's the, maybe that's season two, I don't know, but he's the professor at the school at Columbia where A teaches. And again, it's just like, you know, these guys can do it. Yeah. Yeah, I right. also grew up with all of them, right? You know, it's just like, you know, I've been casting since I was 29, I'm 56. And so it's just like through the years, all of these people become friends and colleagues and you grow up with everyone and you know them. Yeah. So you're like, of course they can do it. Of course they can do it. Of course they can do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, the wealth of talent in New York from the theater must have been where your comfort level makes complete and total sense to anyone in terms of where to draw this talent from. Because well, it's like a musical, yeah. right? Because The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is written almost like a musical. Sure. And so people either know how to do it or they don't, I think. Yeah. Well, there's certainly a musical rhythm to that right. speedy pattern and cadence. Well, and there are a lot of musical montages, right? There oh, are sure. Of, of course. Girls and all that. Yeah. A Mary Testa. Ah, plays our, the first. Mary was in Xanadu, <laughs> right? She was one of the two evil women. Guess who else? Mary Testa and Jackie Hoffman, who you know comes into. <laughs> so, and Amy was obsessed with Xanadu, so it was like, what about Mary Testa? Do you think yeah. she'll do it? Yeah. Mary Testa was like, of course I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, she was great as the first psychic that Rose Weissman goes to see. Yeah. As was uh, Michael Nathanson playing Lou Fogelman, the William Morris agent. He was great. And also Michael's been kicking around in New York, but he also auditioned and his audition was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. But I think that's the other thing. It's just like everyone auditions. Yeah, sure. They have to see and hear it. Yeah. You know. And in episode seven, 
the penultimate episode of season one is the introduction of the incomparable Jane Lynch. And along with her, when we go to her private home and we see that she's quite different than her character of Sophie Lennon, we are introduced to her major domo named Dawes by Stephen Hawk, who, or is it Hawk? I'm not sure the pronunciation. Hawk, who is so spot on, Stephen Hawk. That's just good acting, though, right? It's like great acting. He auditioned. So that's like, you know, random. And you're just, we had no idea if he'd come back or not. And so that's one of those casting jobs where you're just like, you have to see 20 to 30 people for a role for one part. And then you send seven to 10 auditions and then somebody gets it. Or they say, no, we don't see it. It's not right. We need to go older. We need to go younger, you know. Yeah. So I wanted to bring attention to Stephen Hawk because I do feel like he's one of those actors that when he's cast and fills the role and brings his own special flair, especially in this episode, it's one of those performances that makes me as an actor think he just invented this character. I know it was all written brilliantly and the wardrobe is brilliant and the cinematography, everything is stunning, but his performance is so instantly perfect. Yeah. That there's no one else that could have played the part. No, I agree. It's like there are people who just embody roles sometimes. It's like the glove fits perfectly, right? Yes. And the other actor who I made note of in this seventh episode, who becomes the new psychic, the second psychic. Katrina. Katrina. Oh, my God. Well, and that's also Katrina and Tony. Yes. Did visit together. Tony Winners. Tony Winners. And that's how that came about. That's how Katrina came about for that part. My better half, Jamie, and I just saw her in company, and I thought she was revelatory. I really Which did. I cast. Well, then I'm even happier with my honest review. <laughs> Thank goodness. She is phenomenal in company. And yeah. You'll never see being alive in that way ever. No, I thought it was the most brilliant choices of a dramatic performance in that moment that needed that emotion. And I don't know that it's ever had it before. I think of that thing. It's just like, you know, uh, she's an incredible actor. Yeah. And so she's actually acting the song, not just singing it. So she's doing both. And I think that's what's extraordinary about her performance is that this is, you know, somebody who can sing it, but really can act the act it. Yeah, really well, you know. Yeah, which is what Stephen Sondheim said when he, you know, at her callback because she auditioned and he was there. He said, "I've always just wanted somebody to be able to act this role, and you did that." Wow, that's extraordinary. Yeah, what a gift and a moment, especially since his passing. Yeah. To stay with Katrina for the rest of her life. And I love that's some good stories, Kevin. (laughs) You have nailed it. We've only got one episode left. All right. come on. I'll let you get back to your life. But I did want to point out that I loved Katrina also in her work uh, recently and currently, I suppose, as Claire Shaw in Ozark. Oh, so good. Yeah, she was was exceptional as always. Now, Mm -hmm. in episode, the last episode of season one, Chris. Churden, if I'm saying that right, plays Don, who is part of Joel and Archie's pitch team at the Plastics Company. Yeah. Uh, I thought he was wonderful. Yeah. Just another great actor. Yeah. And then at the Gaslight, we finally meet the owner of the Gaslight, this character, Eddie, wonderfully played by Rick Stoneback. Audition. Yeah. Right. So again, this is all kudos to you. You know, you're sort of <laughs> saying audition like, yeah, they came in, they earned the part. But you found these people. You you know, I mean, I, I just think that's such a ginormous part. It's just so fun, Kevin. I can't even tell you. It's like when it's the perfect job and when, like, you know, you really understand the people that you're working with, the creatives that you're working with. And when you trust the collaboration, everything yeah. is second you know it's just like no one's second guessing each other it could be so fraught i mean we've all had those jobs we've all had those jobs where it's like you don't get somebody they don't get you they don't trust you why did they hire you none of that exists with the paladinos and so what is amazing is that then you are able to just do your job Mm. 
when you have people who also just respect what you're doing and give you everything that you need and then get out of your way to do yeah. the job you're hired to do. Yeah. Perfect. And so I will do anything that Amy Schimpaldino and Dan Paladino ever do again in their life if they will have me. <laughs> well, that says it all, because I can guarantee you don't feel that way with everyone you've worked with. No one. I could say the same to you. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, right back at you and careful what you wish, because I'm allegedly directing again when we finish this final season and I'm going to be sending you a script. Oh, I can't wait. OK, good. <laughs> and now it's on the record. Um, <laughs> there were these dancers at the burlesque theater that Midge was about to perform in until Harry Drake stops her. But I on the IMDb, there were listing of the actors names like Puss in Boots and Rosy Cheeks. And I thought, OK, they're all from downtown theater burlesque shows all of course. in Woodbeck. <laughs> yeah. What a great idea. Why not get the, the professionals? Get the real ones. You know, it's just like <laughs> authenticity. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and then the very last moment of this season finale for me that right before the very last, because the very last moment is just Midge looking into camera saying thank you and good night. But her ex-husband, Joel, is lurking while she's performing that last set of the season. And, you know, he's really discovering how good she is. But we don't really know it until she gets heckled by these drunks. And Joel follows one of them out of the theater and pummels him. This actor, David Shumbris, plays the said drunk heckler. And Joel stands up. And as he's walking away, he's crying and he says, she's good. She's good. And it's one of the most memorable moments for me of the entire series. Mm -hmm. And how great can you comment on in terms of Mike Zegan's work in the show? Mike Zegan is incredible. Yeah. Did you ever see um, Mike Zegan? He was in A View from the Bridge on no, Broadway. I, I heard. With Mark Strong and Nicola Walker. Mm. And he was incredible as Rodolfo, right? Yeah. He played Rodolfo and he was magnificent. Um, and I think I first saw Mike Zegan in a play. I, I could be making this up, but I feel like it was a play at the Roundabout Theater at their second stage, the Underground. Mm -hmm. Sarah Steele, am I making this up? I could be making this up. And sometimes I see so many plays that they converge. Sure. But it was an off-Broadway theater. But again, I didn't cast Mike Zegan. No, I no. But he's so perfect. And I did cast Mike Zegan in a Showtime series and he was amazing and it was called Happy-ish and he was phenomenal and he came in and he auditioned and again, he just got the part like this. Yeah. So phenomenal. He's so good. I spoke with him on the podcast. He talked about his audition process for Maisel and um, I just wanted you to weigh in a little bit because I'm such a fan of his. Oh, he's just so good. And there are yeah. like actors that no one else can play the parts. Like, could you ever imagine anyone else playing that role of Joel now? I no, can't. No, not in a million years. No. Yeah. No. And Luke Kirby, oh. another one of those revelatory performances on the show that... He is incredible. Yeah. He is incredible. Beyond. Incredible. Lenny Bruce? See, that's the thing. I'm so happy I didn't have to cast the pilot. I would have died. <laughs> I had to, uh, to cast Lenny Bruce? Yeah. Yeah, so extraordinary. Well, thank you, Cindy, so very damn much. Oh, my pleasure, Kev. I knew you would bring the insights, and I wanted your perspective of this first season. And if it's okay, I would, if you, you know, give it some thought, but I will check back in with you, and maybe we'll do this again for the future seasons after this first one. Just, again, an overview of these very special people who came in, you know, sure. during each one of these seasons. I sort of wanted to if you don't mind. I don't mind. I'd love it. Okay, I, great. I, I would great. love talking about Maisel over and over and over again. Okay, good. good. Well, thank you. And um, there you have it. I know you have a gazillion projects that are moving forward. So unless there's anyone in particular that you want folks to know about, they can just follow you online and, and know where your brilliance will lead them next. Yeah. Is there anything in particular you want to bring people's attention to? You know what I am doing is I'm producing a Broadway play. Yay! <laughs> I'm producing Death of a Salesman on Broadway. Oh, my this God. Fall with Wendell Pierce and Sharon D. Clark, a black woman family in a white capitalist society. So check it out. Genius. Now, I feel like 
Wendell did this in the West End. Is that possible? It did, and yeah. it was nominated for five Olivier Awards, and I produced it there, and now we're bringing it to Broadway. Well, congratulations. That's a no-brainer. Can't wait to see it. Rehearsals are... September. Amazing. So it'll be, yeah, preview September 16th, and it will run to the end of January. Well, I will see it then, because I will be shooting season five, I'm told, till like mid-October. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll be, I'll be working on that, too. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, see you soon, I hope. And thank you again very, very thank much. Thank you, Kevin, so much. And thanks for saying yes. Well, <laughs> it's been the greatest gift of my life. We all know that. Well, yes, yes, indeed. Have to say it. Want to say it. How about that? How about that? Well, let me know your thoughts. Write to my at gmail.com. I would love to hear what you think about what you just listened to. Please, please bring it. If you have any follow-up questions for Cindy, please share them with me. I'll share them with her. She'll record her answer to you on her phone. She'll send it to me, and I will incorporate it into a future episode. That's how it is done. That is how I say thank you to you for your continued support and involvement in the show. Let's now throw it to the mailbag, see what some of you have to ask. Today's mail comes from Daniel. Daniel writes, Dear Mrs. Maisel Pod, a.k.a. Kevin, Hello from a, well, not long time, but regular listener. Before I was a background extra on the show, I hadn't ever seen an entire episode of Maisel. I tried three times to watch the first episode, and I don't know what it was about the first scene. Something about Midge's attitude at her wedding kind of turned me off. I don't know. Whoa. Eventually, at the insistence of my girlfriend... I'm going to interject smart, tasteful girlfriend. I watched it, and after the first five to ten minutes of episode one, I loved it. Well, I hope you thanked your girlfriend. Daniel, he goes on. After I did season four at the Wolford, I was like, who the fuck built an entire club inside of Steiner? Context after I did makes me assume this is when he was a background actor. Wilford being the theater that was a strip club theater built inside Steiner Studios where we shot the series. He goes on. It wasn't just a set. It was an entire real club with an actual flipping stage with stagehands all caps several exclamation points. It was bonkers. In season five, I was at the trade show in the warehouse in the Bronx. Again, crazy attention to detail. I know what you're talking about with a joyous set and overall great vibe. I remember working on set with Lincoln and Dan in costumes for more than one season. I remember Rachel asking Amy at the trade show, how is it looking? Amy says, it's good. Rachel said, what would make it great? And Amy replied, if I was 20. Anyhow. I was a bit bummed I never got to work directly with you and Caroline weren't in the scenes I was in. Well, maybe next time. What was the question? We're finally getting to a question from Daniel. Was the Maisel factory set in Steiner? The room looked quite familiar to where I had all the fittings. I appreciate the podcast, even though all of the content is in the past. I'm sure eventually you'll be doing the pod in more or less the present. Hmm. Thanks for all you do. Best, Daniel. Daniel, oh, so much to unwrap. Sorry we didn't get to work together. Damn it. I'm thrilled you enjoyed your experience. And that was a great quote of the exchange between Rachel and Amy uh, that I did not know of personally. So thank you for that. What a gift. What a great uh, exchange and another fine example of the hilarity genius that is Amy and the forever curious and wanting to do better uh, that is Rachel. Great, great, wonderful. You skipped ahead of where we are, uh, that this, I'm reading your question in terms of chronological of episodes of the podcast, but you did circle back to ask a question about the Maisel factory set. So I'm assuming you mean Maisel and Roth, the, uh, Schmata a factory. We shot originally at an existing one, as I believe was mentioned in the podcast. Um, and then uh, they finally built the set here in season two, coinciding with this podcast episode that's dropping, which is um, season two, episode one. Uh, so yeah, uh, season two is when they built everything, really, on the soundstage. It wasn't the entire 
factory. It was a portion. And we did return to the actual factory for some scenes as well. But they did build my office, which became Joel's co-office, but also Joel's apartment within the factory. I think that unfolds in season two as well. We'll get to that later. But thank you, Daniel. Terrific question and comments and quotes. Well done, Daniel. Daniel, shoot me back an email with your address. It's time to give out a prize. And you see how delighted I am with all the information that Daniel shared? That's not the only reason for the prize. It's time to give out some prizes. So this is the beginning of that process as we start covering season two, episode one, and, and beyond. Thank you, everyone, for writing into my Mrs. at gmail.com. I love your emails. I'll continue to answer them. And please continue to enjoy the show. And again, thank you, Daniel. And so now we close it up. Close up the mailbag. Yes, there it goes. Sealed once again until next week. Will you uh, please rewatch season two, episode two of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel in preparation for next week's pod episode with a very, very special guest. Oh, my goodness. Multi-Emmy award-winning, special, extraordinary, talented genius for next episode. Ooh, yes. Let's uh, give credit where credit is due. My research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and my recording engineer, post-production genius, Ken Plume. The fine, loving folks at QCO. QCO! Sounds like something, doesn't it? And, um, yeah. Give a shout-out to me at mymrsmazelpod at gmail.com. Give a shout-out to people in your life. Hey, I'm listening to this uh, podcast. You should check it out. Hey, you, you and I spoke about uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You, you were a fan, right? Are you still a fan? Well, I've got good news for you. There is this, and then I'll let you say the rest. But that's the opening script, in case you want to. Look forward to hearing from you. Very excited to involve you in the show on a continuous basis. Until next time, see you in my dreams, and please be kind to each other. Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal fees. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us.